Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the spiritual struggles that people sometimes and can even often have is knowing how willing, how determined Jesus is as Savior of sinners. It's a very real concern. And it's an understandable concern, especially when you know something of the sinfulness of your sin. Uh, and, and something, when you have a sense of the holy wrath of God that you deserve for your sin. Last week we looked at Luke 22 verses 39 to 46 telling us about the sinless Savior preparing to suffer that wrath of God, preparing to suffer hell. We heard him in the garden pleading with his father for the removal of the cup of God's wrath. We heard him showing his submission. And we heard the answer his father gave. He sent an angel. Remember children? He sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him. And we saw the impact that that answer had on Jesus. As he in great agony was praying earnestly. With his sweat being as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. It was a scene that confronted us with the horror of hell. With the horror of drinking the cup of the wrath of God. And it was a scene that amazed us with the love of God for sinners. That the Father would give that cup to His Son to drink in their place. And that His Son would submit to drinking it. That he would submit to suffering hell. And so it was a scene, as we noted last time, that really sets all of Christ's sufferings in its proper light. It really shows us what, what's all going on as he suffers. But when Christ finished praying, he was still a free man, at least for a few moments. And perhaps the question could be asked, could he change his Mind, Is he really willing to suffer hell? Is he really willing to drink the cup? I mean, it's one thing to submit before the time of real suffering begins. Before the hour of trial. But when the hour of suffering comes, when it arrives, is he really willing to be the savior of sinners? Is he really determined to suffer? Well, that's... That's one of the questions Luke answers in the next verses. He shows us that Jesus was determined to suffer. He was determined to drink the cup of his father's wrath and all the sufferings that, that went along with that. You see, congregation, the arrest of Jesus in our text for this morning in Luke 22, verses 47 to 54. That arrest is not the arrest of someone trying to escape. It's not the arrest of a man that's too weak to resist. What Luke brings out so clearly in his passage is that it's the arrest of the Almighty Lord, the sovereign Son of Man, one who by his power could have either escaped or slain his enemies in an instant, but who didn't. The arrest of Jesus is the arrest of the willing Savior. Jesus isn't arrested because his enemies are, are so powerful or so determined. 
Jesus is arrested because he is determined. He is determined to be the Savior, determined to suffer in the place of sinners. And with God's help, that's, that's really just the one simple lesson we want to learn from this passage this morning. Under the theme, the Lord shows his determination to suffer in his arrest. First, we'll see him enduring betrayal. Secondly, we'll see him stopping resistance. And thirdly, we'll see him surrendering himself. The first evidence then of his determination to suffer is his enduring betrayal. We see this especially in verses 47 to 48. But, but let's just back up for a moment to understand better what is, what is happening. Do you remember where Jesus is, children? He's on the Mount of Olives. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's, that's the place where he and his disciples have been going every night for the last while. But this night is different. Jesus has just risen up from a time of intense agony and prayer to his Father as he looked ahead to the cup of his wrath that he was about to drink. And in verses 45 and 46, it tells us that when he rose and returned to his disciples, disciples whom he had told what to do, what did he tell them to do? He had told them to pray. He found them sleeping. He found them sleeping. And so he wakes them up and he, he tells them, he urges them again to pray lest they enter into temptation. But verses 47 and 48 tell us that even before he had finished speaking those words, while he yet spake, behold, a multitude. In other words, suddenly a big crowd of people came upon the place where Jesus and his disciples were. And then we read this. And he that was called Judas... One of the twelve went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Now on the one hand, what a penetrating question this was for Judas. The Lord Jesus here shows him, doesn't he, what a sin he has committed? With a kiss, a symbol of love and respect, betraying the Son of Man? But it also shows us what a betrayal Jesus endured. He could have prevented it. He could have avoided it. He could have stopped it. He could have immediately avenged himself for it. But he didn't. He let it happen. He let Judas kiss him. He let his own disciple hand him over to people who wanted to kill him. He endured it. A congregation that shows us, that shows us his determination, his willingness to suffer. Think about what kind of a betrayal this was. It was in the first place, it was a treacherous, such a treacherous betrayal. Judas was, the text says, one of the twelve. He wasn't an enemy from the outside coming in. He was one of the Lord's own chosen disciples, one of his closest followers. He was a member of his core group. The Lord Jesus had blessed Judas with countless privileges. Judas had, had heard from Jesus much of the same teaching the other 11 disciples had heard. He had seen the miracles Jesus had performed. Jesus had even given Judas power and authority, according to Luke 9 verse 1, over all devils. And to cure diseases. 
He had sent Judas with the other disciples to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He had so many privileges. Jesus had even warned Judas beforehand earlier that evening about his act of betrayal. During the Passover meal in Luke 22, verses 21 and 22, Jesus says this, But behold, the hand of him that betrays with me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And yet Judas still did it. He had already decided to do it before Jesus said those words. And Jesus' warning didn't change his mind. Judas, one of the twelve, betrayed his master and his teacher. And Jesus endured that. Oh, he didn't approve it. He didn't excuse it. He didn't turn a blind eye to it. No, he confronted it. He confronted it compassionately and he confronted it strongly. But even his confrontation, as we'll see in a moment, it highlights his endurance of it. The point here is that he didn't stop Judas's betrayal. He didn't refuse his kiss. Yes, he exposed the sin. He, 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 gave, giving, he gave Judas one last warning, one last call to repent. But he didn't stop it. He endured it. Why? Why would the Almighty, the Divine Son of God, allow and endure such a treacherous betrayal? It's not because he had no choice from a human standpoint. It's not because he was forced. It's because he was determined to suffer hell. It's because he was determined to drink the cup of his father's wrath. And doesn't that show you, congregation? Doesn't that show you and I what, what a willing Savior he is? That he would endure such a treacherous betrayal. But more than that, he endured a supremely wicked betrayal. And Jesus really brings this out when he confronts Judas in verse 48. He says to Judas, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? And Jesus highlights here the wickedness, the evil of Judas's act by emphasizing two things. First of all, Judas's kiss. And secondly, his own, his own identity. Literally, he says in the original, he says, Judas, with a kiss, the Son of Man, are you betrayed? The Lord is pointing out here how wicked Judas's betrayal of him is. Judas wasn't content to just bring Jesus' enemies to him. He actually went up and pretended to show respect. He pretended to show love for his master with a kiss. You know, we think it sounds strange for a man to kiss another man in our culture. But in some countries, even some still today, that's how men greet each other. Kind of like our, our handshake. And so the kiss of Judas shows how far, how far he was willing to go. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, Judas made a pretense of affection and respect at the very moment when he was about to deliver his master into the hands of his deadliest enemies. And then he says this, to betray Christ at any time is the very height of wickedness, but to betray him with a kiss proves a man to have become a very child of hell. The kiss 
of Judas shows us what a wicked act he had committed. But that's not even the worst of it. The worst of it is, is who the one he betrayed is. The Son of Man. That's how Jesus describes himself here, right? Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? What did Jesus mean? What did he mean with that title? Sometimes we think that it simply means that he was a man, and of, of course it includes that. But, it, but, but, it, but it's more than that. It means more than that. That name, the Son of Man, means that he was a promised Savior King. It meant he was the glorious divine Messiah, the one Daniel had seen in his vision in Daniel 7 verse 13, the Son of Man receiving an everlasting and indestructible kingdom from God. That's the one, that's the person Judas is betraying with a kiss. How foolish. How foolish for Judas to betray this one. How foolish for him to betray the Son of Man. And how dreadfully wicked to betray that Son of Man whom Jesus said had come to seek and to save the lost. You know, it's easy to think we would never do that. And of course we cannot betray Judas in the same way, or Jesus in the same way that Judas did. But isn't confessing his name and, and professing your love to him with your mouth, while at the same time with your life trampling the gospel by word and deed, isn't that just like betraying Jesus with a kiss? Does that describe you? Well, then hear the sincere call of Christ in our text to turn from your sin, to look to him, hear his call to you, his warning to you, even in his question to Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? He is willing to save even such a sinner. His endurance of Judas' betrayal proves it. You see, he is a holy, sinless Savior. The Son of Man himself endured this awful betrayal. How painful! How painful this must have been to him as a man to have felt that kiss of, the, of his own disciple That's, that what was supposed to be a symbol of love but to have felt that kiss of, full of hate. And yet he allowed Judas to do it. How Jesus humbled himself because he was determined determined to suffer. He was determined to be the savior of sinners. What does that mean? What does that mean for us here this morning, congregation? Doesn't it mean, shouldn't the Lord's enduring this, this treacherous, wicked betrayal simply encourage you to look to him? Shouldn't it encourage you to trust in him, to look to Jesus alone, to go to him for salvation, to go to him in all your needs? What a willing savior he must be and is that he would endure such a betrayal. For the salvation of sinners. Oh, then don't dishonor him. Don't dishonor him by refusing to trust him. Don't, don't dishonor him by thinking he won't save you. Or by thinking he won't forgive that sin or, or this sin. Yes, he will even forgive even your own sin of betrayal. Whether that's betrayal of another person in your life. Or whether that's your own betrayal of himself. There is no sin that Jesus is unwilling to forgive and save you from. 
Or don't dishonor him then by thinking, thinking that he's unwilling, he's unwilling to save. Or by thinking that perhaps he doesn't care about your struggle, that he isn't willing to help you in your need or in your own trials and temptations. It can be so easy even for believers to have those thoughts, to have such hard thoughts of Jesus. I know. I know. But it's wrong. Jesus endured such a betrayal because he was determined to suffer. He was determined to save sinners. And he calls on every sinner to come to him because of the salvation that he has accomplished by his suffering on the cross. So let's every one of us then, let's every one of us go, go to him with all of our sin, with all of our struggles and all of our needs and let's cast all our burdens on him. Let us pour out our hearts to him. Because as one person wrote, Jesus experienced betrayal, but never did and never will betray anyone who comes to him for help. Trust in him. How much encouragement there is in our passage to do so. Seeing Jesus' determination to suffer not only, not only in his enduring this treacherous and wicked betrayal, but also in his, in his stopping resistance. And we see this especially in verses 49 to 51. These verses tell us that when they which were about him, that's his disciples, when they saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And, and one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right, his right ear. Now, we've been talking about this passage for 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes. But we need to remember, congregation, that all this happened in a very short time, probably not more than a minute or two. Verse 47 tells us that as Jesus was still speaking to his disciples, suddenly a crowd of people entered the place where he was with Judas leading them. And in John's Gospel, we learn that Jesus, well, Jesus immediately confronted that whole group and he even knocked them down to the ground just with his word. And he told them to let his disciples go free. But then it seems that right after that, Judas came forward to kiss Jesus. And at the same time, his other disciples who had just woken up only a few moments earlier, they're, they're trying to figure out what's going on. And, and they react almost immediately by trying to defend their Lord and Master. They ask him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And they don't even give him time to answer. Instead, one of them, and we know from, from John's Gospel, it was Peter. Not much of a surprise there, but... He, he, he takes a sword out and he, and he swings it at the head of the, the high priest servant and he slices off his right ear. You can almost... This, this happened in a, in a matter of minutes at the most. You can almost feel the... Imagine the tension in the garden go skyrocketing up at that point. What does Jesus do? Does he cheer Peter on? Does he thank him? Does he encourage the other disciples to to take out their swords too and to attack? No. Look at verse 51. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus stopped the resistance by his word and by his touch. He stopped it immediately with his word. Suffer ye this thus far or permit Allow even this. Some commentators think it amounts to saying, no more of this. 
Whatever the case, it's clear that Jesus immediately stopped all resistance to his betrayal and to his capture. Because he was firmly, you see, and irreversibly committed to suffering, to drinking the cup of God's wrath upon sin in the place of sinners. And this was the way it would happen. It was the way God had ordained it to happen. He was, as Isaiah 53 verse 7 declares, to be brought, to be led as a lamb to the slaughter. How could allowing his disciples to fight fulfill that prophecy? Yes, he might still have been killed. After all, there were enough people in that crowd to overcome Jesus' disciples. But if that had happened, if he had let his disciples fight, his enemies would then have had a good reason for his death. They could have legitimately accused him of of leading or at least allowing a violent rebellion and of resisting arrest. Yes, Jesus must indeed die. But he must die as a sacrificial lamb of God. He must die not for any sin in himself, but for the sins of others. And so the Lord doesn't tolerate even for a moment any resistance to the men who had come to seize him. Do you see with me here? You see with me in his stopping resistance so quickly, his determination to suffer. His determination to save. Doesn't that show you his heart? Doesn't that tell you how willing he is to be the savior of sinners? Doesn't that draw you to him? Jesus stopped the resistance of his disciples, not only by his word immediately, but he also stopped it firmly by his touch. He undid what Peter had done. He touches the ear of the the high priest's servant and he heals him. He heals one of who? His enemies. It's interesting to note that all four Gospels tell us about the servant's ear being cut off. But only Luke tells us about Jesus healing this man. It's the last miracle we, we hear Jesus of doing. What selflessness we see in Jesus here. He goes about doing good, as the Bible says. Even to his enemies. Even when he's about to suffer and die. What a picture What a picture of his salvation. Isn't his healing, his healing of this man's ear, a token of his willingness to save even his worst enemies? Isn't it a picture of what he did by drinking the cup of God's wrath and by dying on the cross? Who are the people for whom Christ died? Who are the people whom Christ reconciled to God by his death? Paul describes them for us in Romans 5. They are people who are by nature ungodly. People who were sinners. People who were his enemies. Those are the people Christ died for. Christ stopped all that resistance to his suffering in the garden because he wanted, yes, because he was willing to save such people. People who were his enemies. People like the high priest's servant. So that he can heal them. So that he can heal not not first of all their physical ears, but their sinful hearts. Oh, doesn't the way Christ so firmly stops this resistance to his suffering by his touch, doesn't it tell us how willing a Savior he is? The question is, have you come to him? You need him. 
All of us need him. I've said that many times and I'll keep saying it because it's true and because we, we so quickly forget it and so quickly minimize it. We're all sinners by nature. We're all rebels and enemies of God by nature who apart from Christ are under the wrath of God. But this is the gospel congregation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, even the chiefest of them. That's why he stops all resistance that dark night in the garden. Oh, what a willing Savior the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, is. That's the kind of Savior He is. That's the kind of Savior who offers Himself to you this morning in His Word. That's the kind of Savior you should be preaching to yourself and I should be preaching to myself. That's the kind of Savior we should be portraying to each other and to those around us. Are we? Are you? Maybe you say, what do you mean? What does that look like? Well, let me, let me be clear. It doesn't mean that we just brush off sin as if it doesn't matter. No, what it means, what it means is that we confess. We confess and we forsake and we flee from sin to the Savior. And that we urge others with love and compassion to flee from their sin, to flee to the Savior, who alone can cleanse them and save them and wash them in His blood. What portraying the willing Savior to others means is that we, we have that same burning desire for people's salvation that our Lord Jesus Christ has. So that we pray for them and we reach out to them and we welcome them and we love them and we do good to them and we tell them the gospel. Is that what we're doing? What it also means is that we show the same willingness to forgive. The same willingness to love even our enemies as Christ loved us. It means that instead of taking up the sword of personal revenge against others, and that sword can simply be the unkind words we speak or the angry looks we give or simply acting as if they don't exist, instead of taking up that sword, we love them. We love them like the Lord Jesus and does love us. Are we doing that? Say it's too hard, Pastor. Yes, it is. It is if you try and do it on your own. Just you don't have to. You don't have to because we have a willing Savior, Jesus, the one who endured such betrayal and who stopped all resistance because he was determined to suffer, because he was and is so willing to save people who are by nature his enemies, who are sinners. Yes, including also proud and confused and struggling disciples who had failed to pray when he told them to, and who in a few moments would forsake him, and even in one case deny him publicly. Well, then won't you look to him? Won't you trust in him? How can you doubt him? Doesn't he make so clear his determination to suffer as the willing savior in this passage? He doesn't just endure betrayal and he doesn't even just stop all resistance. He also surrenders himself. 
Look with me, please, at verses 52 and 53 into 54. After healing the high priest's servant, we read this. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves or clubs. When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And then they took him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house. What do you see here, congregation? Do you see a powerless man being arrested by force? No. What you see here, what we read here, is the Lord showing his determination to suffer by surrendering himself. Notice the authority of Jesus here. It's not the people who've come to arrest him that speak. It's not the chief priests and the temple captains and the elders. It's the Lord Jesus. And with a calm and a clear and yes, a stinging rebuke, he exposes the evil of what they are doing. He asks them, have you come out against, as against a thief with swords and staves? When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me. What is Jesus saying? He's pointing out the evil of their action. He was not a criminal. He was not a thief. He was not a violent rebel who had to be taken down by the force of swords and clubs. If he was, they could have easily seized him earlier when he was teaching in the temple. No, but Jesus here, he's acting as it were as judge. He brings down the gavel with his words and with authority declares who really is the guilty party in this scene. It's not him. It's them. And yet, what does he do next? What does the innocent one, the righteous one say? Does he say, now let me go? No. Does he call a multitude of angels to come and take these wicked men away? No. He, the Lord himself, says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. There's a lot we could say about this, but let me just say a few things. What he's doing here is surrendering himself into their hands because it's as he says, as it were, the time has come. The hour appointed by God in eternity had arrived. It was time. It was time for him to drink the cup. It was time for him to suffer hell. It was time for him to be numbered with the transgressors. It was time for him to die by the hands of wicked men enslaved in the power and dominion of Satan. It was the appointed time. And he was determined to suffer. That was the hour he had come for. They thought they were winning. Satan thought he was winning. But they weren't. Jesus is the one who is winning. Even through their evil, he was triumphing as the savior of sinners. He surrendered himself. And that's why, congregation, we today may hear, be here this morning and we may hear the good news that there is a Savior who is willing to save every sinner who comes to Him for grace and for mercy, who comes to Him for salvation. 
You see, he surrendered himself to the power of darkness. Why? So that he might, through his word, and yes, even perhaps through the word proclaimed this morning, open the eyes of the blind, to turn them from darkness to light, and to turn them from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. What a willing Savior. What a great Savior He is. The Lord surrendered Himself. And they took Him and led Him and brought Him into the high priest's house. Behold, behold Him being led away. But be careful you behold him rightly. Do not behold him as a helpless victim. Behold him, behold him as the most willing Savior who endured betrayal, who stopped resistance, who surrendered himself so that he might be the Savior of sinners. Isn't he worthy of our faith? Isn't he worthy of our obedience? Isn't he worthy of our worship? Amen. O oh Lord our God, we give thanks for this revelation of what happened in the garden that night, the night before our Lord was crucified. That we might know and see and understand that he died not as a helpless victim, but he died as a willing Savior. Lord, we pray that we would marvel and worship him even more than we came here to do. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we have witnessed his determination to suffer, so we would respond with determined faith and determined obedience and determined worship. Yes, that we would respond even with the desire and the determination to suffer for his sake. What a privilege that would be. Not that we would embrace the suffering per se, but that we might know, as Paul prayed, not only the power, that we may know not only him and the power of his resurrection, but also the fellowship of his sufferings. And Lord, we all have sufferings to one degree or another. Help us, O oh Lord, help us to know what it is to suffer as a Christian to suffer for Christ, in honor of Christ, in love to Christ. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>